Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. Illinois has been on a progressive policy pathway since Governor J.B. Pritzker took office in 2019. And in 2023, some of the highest profile proposals transformed from an aspiration to reality. To break down the big stories in Illinois politics throughout the past 12 months, we are joined by St. Louis Public Radio's Will Bauer and Brian Munoz. Will covers the Metro East for St. Louis Public Radio, while Brian, a Metro East native, is STLPR's interim digital editor. Brian, Will, welcome to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. So both of you ranked the top stories that you thought affected Illinois politics, and there was actually a tie for fifth between chronic sewer issues in Cokia Heights and paid leave across the state. Will, what can you say about these two stories? Sure. Well, I'll start with the Paid uh, Leave for All Workers Act, um, which would have been passed during the lame duck session in the early part of the year and then signed by the governor, Governor J.B. Pritzker, later in March. And this now law, or soon to be law, takes effect January 1st of 24, um, makes Illinois at the time one of three states that will require paid time off for any reason. So basically, the bill guarantees workers, you know, 40 hours of paid leave, employees, still need to notify their employees that they will take that time. But of course, uh, many employers already do this and more. So that is something that Illinois would have done. And then close to home here in Cokie Heights, not necessarily a political story um, on its face, but for those that don't know, the old city of Centerville, now part of Cokie Heights after a 2021 merger, um, have long dealt with chronic sewer and stormwater issues that have left um, sewage in basements and standing water in their yards and just really, really... Um, unfortunate situations for long periods of time. Latest developments with this would be some pretty good reporting from the Belleville News Democrat, our, our friends over there. Um, they've detailed preliminary studies from WashU that have found bacteria with the, the people that live in Centerville and also what's more state and local public health agencies have done very little even knowing some of this stuff. Now, one thing that is unquestionably a political story is Darren Bailey's decision to run against Republican Congressman Mike Boss in Illinois' 12th district. Bailey was the GOP nominee for governor in 2022 in Illinois, but he lost decisively to Pritzker. Brian, was this a surprise? I, like many political watchers, were wondering whenever the maps came out on the redistricting on whether or not Darren Bailey would come back after this pretty handedly, you know, this pretty handed loss against J.B. Pritzker and go for another seat. And I think Democrats knew in Illinois specifically that this was going to be the showdown that was going to happen. And it's really going to become a litmus test on the Trump factor in rural Southern Illinois. You had Donald Trump uh, endorse both Mike Bost and Darren Bailey in the last cycle. And so, you know, it's a waiting game to see. I, what I remember when uh, Trump endorsed Bailey when we were together in Menden, Illinois. That was a day I'll never forget because it was my birthday. Yeah, that was, you know, a super memorable experience. And I think, you know, Illinois Democrats overall just have pretty much abandoned down further downstate Illinois, southern Illinois, that is, um, you know, and 
we'll see what happens here. I think, you know, Mary Miller and whoever wins this race are going to be best buds there in Congress. And uh, I think it's uh, a waiting game to see how this goes. I, I don't think Mary Miller and Mike Bost are very good friends. Considering She's endorsed Ma- Bailey. So I, I think there will be some bad blood if a boss pulls this out. But but the number three story involves an investigation in a, about abuse and neglect at Shote Mental Health and Development Center in Anna, Illinois. And Brian, from what I've read, there were some pretty shocking allegations at Abs- this facility. Absolutely, absolutely. This investigation, in my opinion, is one of the largest accountability series uh, in the state of Illinois this year, of course, which is why it made my list. Uh, this investigation by Beth Hunsdorfer and Molly Parker of Capital News Illinois now um, details abuse over the years at Shope Mental Health and Developmental Center in Anna, Illinois, about two hours south. And among some of those allegations and the things that they found and they, they found that investigators had also found included nurses being forced to have patients dig through their own feces, patients threatened to have their bones broken if they didn't cooperate with them, patients being punched in the face, in one instance, one forced to drink hot sauce. And all in all, show employees lied to state police and to state investigators and just tried to cover this up. And I think the big question is, what's, what is the state going to do about this? Right. So there's been a large swath of staff and directors that have been removed. And of course, uh, different state agencies have been stepping in and trying to uh, help remedy the situation. But the latest recommendation is that half of the population there uh, be shifted to other facilities. But since that's happened, we've only heard about how dozen or two, you know, being moved. And we'll have to be following to see if the rest are moved to other facilities. Now, another story that got a lot of attention, primarily because of the very confusing legal trajectory involved a state assault weapons ban that was largely passed after the tragic shooting in Highland Park, Illinois. Will, I know it's a little bit difficult to describe the the legal mumbo jumbo of this, but I do think it matters in terms of how this is implemented. It absolutely does. And This would have taken effect back when the governor signed it back in early January, but it's been tied up, like you said, tons of legal challenges. And the confusing part about this is that there have been different judges saying different things, right? And some of them were on like back-to-back days. So for example, the federal judge here at the Southern District of Illinois in East St. Louis would have said, no, I don't think this is constitutional. I'm gonna block it. I believe it was a day earlier that a federal judge in Northern Illinois would have said the exact opposite, right? So that would have been kicked up to the Seventh uh, Circuit Court of Appeals in Chicago, which they would have said, we um, believe this is constitutional. And the U.S. Supreme Court has been asked twice to issue an injunction, right, to stop it from taking place, but they have so far declined. And the big thing that people will be watching is to see if the U.S. Supreme Court does actually take it up and weigh it on its merits, not just we're going to let it take place, but we need to determine, is this constitutional or not? So anyway, lots of legal things took effect in January. There's a registration for registering your gun with state police on January 1st. Lots of things to sort out. And that'll be another thing we'll be following in 2024. But the number one story, and it was a close one, was the elimination of cash bail throughout the land of Lincoln. And don't just take my word for it. Chief Judge Andrew Gleason of the 20th Circuit, which encompasses St. Clair County, this is him talking in September about what the elimination of cash bail means. This changes 
the criminal justice system and its operations as I've known it my whole career, my whole legal career, not just my judicial career, my whole legal career. That is Chief Judge Andrew Gleason of the 20th Circuit, which encompasses St. Clair County. That is quite a statement, Will. Do you think that what may seem like hyperbole from, from that is actually true? Is this as groundbreaking as, as, as it's been said? Yeah, I think everyone, the state's attorneys, the judges, the public defenders, uh, the alleged criminals going through the criminal justice system would have done it completely differently prior to September when these uh, when cash bail would have been eliminated. So yeah, it was it was definitely a historic day. And other states have sort of done this in smaller, similar ways, uh, or in smaller ways, I should say, and the federal court doesn't really have cash bail. But the big deal here is that Illinois is the first to go without cash bail completely. Um, and so this was passed earlier uh, last year, excuse me, 2022 by lawmakers, and it was supposed to go in effect January 1. But, but well, let me guess, there were lawsuits over There it. were lawsuits. <laughs> Jason, you are so intuitive. But eventually those got sorted out. The Supreme Court, Illinois Supreme Court in July said you can go through with it and September it would have taken place. And some of the worries, uh, smaller counties would have really um, been worried about kind of the workload that would have put on them. So, right. So like state's attorneys and public defenders, there's this new process. Instead of saying you allege defendant, you need to pay if you want to get out of jail. There's a new pretrial hearing that a judge would make that determination based on a series of factors. But the public defender would probably in most cases have to represent that alleged defendant. And the state's attorney would then have to staff that to say, no, we, we do want to put this person in jail, et cetera, et cetera. So they were worried about more work. And um, yeah, that was kind of some of the reasons why smaller counties weren't super excited about it. And there was a lot of misinformation about this one floating around there about, you know, this is going to release all of the quote unquote criminals from the jails and, you know, crime was going to run amok in Illinois. And that's not really what happened. I think a provision that's really important to note is that a judge can decide if somebody is harmful or has, you know, the risk of you know, fleeing, et cetera, they can be held still, you know, there's not a bail element, but there is a danger, you know, to the public, to themselves, et cetera. So we'll have to find out in a few minutes whether any of these Illinois stories made the list of top political stories for state and local politics. Brian Munoz is St. Louis Public Radio's interim digital editor, and Will Bauer is STLPR's Metro East reporter. Will, Brian, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. When we get back from the break, we'll talk with St. Louis Public Radio's Sarah Kellogg and Rachel Lipman about the top stories for Illinois, Missouri, and the St. Louis region. This is the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. Welcome back to the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air. Late December is a special time here at St. Louis Public Radio, and not just because we're preparing for holiday feasts, 
This is the time when members of the STLPR politics team dig deep within our collective memories and decide the top state and local political stories of the last 12 months. We asked STLPR's reporters and editors to rank what they felt affected St. Louis, Illinois, or Missouri politics the most. And joining us now to reveal the results are St. Louis Public Radio's Rachel Lippman and Sarah Kellogg. Rachel, Sarah, welcome. Uh, Before we get into the top five, I do want to go over some honorable mentions that just barely missed the list. And Rachel, yours is actually appropriate for this episode because you picked Megan Green and the Board of Aldermen, which we heard earlier in the sh- in the show. I did, and I think it's going to be a fascinating thing to watch and see how you know Megan Green ran away with her election to a full term as board president. She had absolutely no opposition whatsoever. After the downsizing of the Board of Aldermen from 28 to 14, those who tend to kind of lead more toward progressive side of policies, obviously they're not all in agreement with each other on everything. They have a pretty handy majority at the board now. And it's a question of, Jason, I think as you pointed out in the column, whether they can balance wanting to pass policy with just keeping a city of 300,000 people functioning. Sarah, you picked what I will call crazy Republican primaries in Missouri on your list. What? Yeah. Why? Well, and as the statehouse reporter, I feel like it's going to be a lot of what I think deal with next year. But it, it's mainly just because it feels like most everyone is running for something else. And we're going to see how that impacts the session and see how that impacts just the campaign trail. I mean, Secretary of State alone, I think there's at least three candidates, two of which are from the set. Uh, we have at least on the same party, at least for Republicans, we have multiple people running for treasurer. We have multiple people running for governor. So it just seems like there's a lot of going to be, uh, you know, not quite stall-tastic tactics, but I think there's just going to be a lot of tension because of those positions. Uh, we're just going to see how it rolls out. But that was definitely one of my picks. One of the stories that I picked that did not make the list was the rollout of legal marijuana for adult use. I do think it's made a pretty massive impact on the state's economy and its culture. And frankly, if Missouri legalized marijuana, I'm not really sure if it's going to remain illegal federally much longer. But you know what? Congress has surprised me about a lot of different things. On that note, let's get into the top five. And The fifth story of the year that affected Missouri, Illinois, or St. Louis politics was Wesley Bell running against Congresswoman Cori Bush. Uh, Rachel, was it a surprise that Bell decided to get into that race after initially running for the Senate? It was to me, and I found the timing of it pretty interesting as well. This came as the war between Israel and Hamas was ramping up. Cori Bush has obviously been pushing very heavily for a ceasefire in that conflict, which is a controversial position. Uh, I think her campaign count is is low. I think Bell kind of saw an opportunity to get in there on a race that maybe he he thought he could win. And as you mentioned, the differences between the candidates on the Israel-Hamas conflict did loom large. Here is actually Wesley Bell talking about why he feels he would be a better fit for the first district. We needed more uh, steady and effective leadership, not only um, here at home and with the challenges in this in this region, but also on the national stage. Uh, it's a dangerous world. Um, I think we need folks who understand the nuance and complexities of it um, uh, because there will not be a World War IV. That is St. Louis County Prosecutor Wesley Bell talking with me earlier this year. Now, you mentioned public opinion, Rachel. 
Congresswoman Bush actually does feel that her push for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas is in line with public opinion. And she's also pushed back against people who have criticized her. I am not going to sugarcoat anything because the people of St. Louis did not send me to Congress to 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 uh, pacify people and to make people feel comfortable. They sent me to, to D.C. to make sure that I'm speaking for those who are marginalized and oppressed. Do you think Israel-Palestine will play a big role in this Bell-Bush primary? I think it is going to depend what the conflict looks like as we get closer to the actual election. If it is still ongoing, it is still dictating uh, policy of the United States, how it's impacting potentially the polling of the Democratic Party and uh, President Biden as a whole, yes, I think it will continue to be an issue in the race. The number four story that affected St. Louis, Illinois, and Missouri politics comes from Illinois. It is the uh, elimination of cash bail in Illinois, which Will Bauer and Brian Munoz talked about extensively in the last segment. Um, Rachel, Sarah, do you foresee the effort to get rid of cash bail gaining any momentum locally or in Missouri? Rachel, we'll start with you first. Nope. Sarah, I'll, I'll go to you next. Yeah, I'll talk a little more than just no, but I don't see the momentum of that. If it were to happen, it would probably be in the metro areas of St. Louis or Kansas City first, but then you might, you know, deal with interference from the state and, and trying to stop that. So I don't see momentum in that happening right now, no. The number three story that affected St. Louis, Missouri, and Illinois politics were efforts to get a measure before voters in 2024 that would legalize abortion or at least curb the state's abortion ban. Sarah, it seems that there is a desire to roll back Missouri's ban on most abortions, but proponents of abortion rights ran into a lot of procedural barriers, especially when it came to the courts. What happened this year? That's putting it lightly. It feels like it was a delay that started in March of this year, and that led to a lawsuit uh, from the ACLU on behalf of this one set. And if I do talk about sets, there's two main sets of these petitions that are kind of circulating right now. But the first one, part of the delay was because of a disagreement between the attorney general and the auditor's office of who has the power to authorize a fiscal note. So the disagreement between Andrew Bailey, Attorney General Andrew Bailey and Auditor Scott Fitzpatrick basically dragged that out for months and have ultimately led to the Supreme Court saying, no, the uh, attorney general office does not have the ability to basically say, no, I don't think your evaluation was right, auditor. You have to do it again. So that was a delay. And then once got through that portion of it, then uh, Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft was able to write his summaries of the ballot initiative, which the ACLU disagreed with greatly on how he wrote that. So then that had to go to court and went all the way up to circuit court, the Supreme Court batted it down. But it's been a continuous uh, length and basically delay of getting these to the signature collecting portion, which is where we are now with those. What was interesting to me is that Republicans didn't really try to hide their strategy. You had House Speaker Dean Plocker say that a proposed ballot item to raise the threshold to pass constitutional amendments was aimed at abortion initiatives. And then, Sarah, I'm sure you remember this clip from Politically Speaking with State Senator Andrew Koenig, where he was reacting to your question about gumming up the works, so to speak. I fully support gumming up the process because I do not want um, any measure going to a vote of the people, specifically when it comes to abortion, because that life has an interest in being protected by this state, because scientific evidence points that life exists in the womb. That was Republican State Senator Andrew Koenig on an episode of Politically Speaking. Rachel, Sarah, what do you make of the fact that Republicans were so blunt in trying to use procedural 
motions to try to block the abortion initiatives? Because I think depending on which of the measures actually makes it onto the ballot, they know that the only way they can keep this from passing is to gum it up and try to stop it at the procedural stage. There's been a lot of polling that shows there is some support, bipartisan support, for moderating the restrictions on abortion, not to, you know, open access to it at any stage of pregnancy, but to not have it as strict as six-week bans such as exists uh, in Missouri before the overturning of Roe v. Wade, or right now where it's a complete ban except for uh, the health of the mother. And you also have to consider that the re- there's been recent votes on states on abortion. And these are not, you know, this is not California. This is not New York. This is Kansas. This is Kentucky. This is Ohio. And abortion is winning. The right to have an abortion is winning on those issues. And so I think that they're seeing that. And, and I've, I've talked to lawmakers leading up to session to do my, my preview story. And, and there's a lot of saying, well, you know, Missouri is in Ohio. It is a more, they said, you know, Missouri is a pro-life state. But I think that you know, there is the idea that a more conservative measure, maybe one that, you know, allows abortions in, the, in cases of rape and incest and maybe at a 12 week ban, that probably would be more popular than maybe something that would go further. So I think that they're they're seeing that this is a winning issue for states that aren't, you know, liberal utopias. Sarah, you are an excellent segueer because you were <laughs> alluding to the fact that there is an abortion legalization proposal from a Republican strategist named Jamie Corley that, as you mentioned, creates a slew of exceptions and also has a 12-week window to get an abortion. Uh, This is Corley talking with me earlier this year. People, whether they say they're pro-life, whether they say they're pro-choice, whether they say actually neither of those terms really identifies my views on this issue, can get behind what we're doing. That is Jamie Corley. She is seeking to get a proposal on the 2024 ballot that would scale back the state's abortion ban. Now, I can tell you abortion rights groups hate this proposal. They want to either go up to fetal viability or not have any gestational limits on when somebody can get an abortion. But the reality is that group, which Sarah alluded to, hasn't put a proposal forward because there's there's frankly some infighting within uh, abortion rights groups about which side to take. So I guess my question for both of you is, where does this issue go from here, given that there's not much time to gather signatures? To me, it's going to come down to whether those abortion rights groups that you just talked about are willing and able to have their people sign it and then willing and able to have their people vote for Corley's measure. It's a question of do we get what we can in the state of Missouri or do we just uh, proverbially throw the baby out with bathwater because it is not exactly what we want? Because I could see some pro-life Republicans getting behind Jamie Corley's measure, but not on something that a group like NARAL, for example, or others might put forward that has fewer limits on it, a ban with, with very limited exceptions. The number two story that affected Missouri, St. Louis, or Illinois politics was the legislative and executive branch fight over transgender rights. And it seemed to be Uh, a huge issue of discussion in Jefferson City early on this year. What exactly ended up passing, Sarah? Well, what ended up passing were two bills, one which bars transgender athletes from base, so, you know, through college, through the collegiate level, uh, from participating on sports teams that align with their gender identity. And then another bars minors, transgender minors, 18, or basically under the age of 18 from accessing health, gender affirming health care. So that's puberty blockers, that's uh, surgeries, which are very rare. Let me start with that. But puberty blockers, hormone therapy, things like that. Um, And so it was an area of division 
uh, pretty much the entire session. But it shows that, you know, ultimately the legislature didn't get a ton of their priorities done last year. But that was something that they were able to, to pass through both chambers, the Republican legislature. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that before any of these bills made it past the finish line, Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey sought to restrict hormone therapy and gender transition surgery for transgender adults. Here's Attorney General Bailey talking with me earlier this year. Well, I'm proud that this is an innovative approach to protecting the health care of patients and making sure that mental health patients have informed consent and have all the information necessary to make good decisions. So I'm proud to be innovative in that regard. And we're confident in the ultimate success. Sarah, it doesn't seem that Attorney General Bailey's emergency rules were well received either by the courts or even Republican legislators. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair. There was definitely a lot of wariness dealing with the barring ultimately adults. And that was a kind of a, like that was kind of the line for a lot of people. And I think that there's still kind of not a, a an interest as far as I know for from leadership on that when it comes to a barring care for adults. Um, but I, I don't think this issue is quite over, though. Um, I know I've again, I feel like I'm previewing my, my feature a lot. But it's what I've talked to. One thing that does make Missouri's laws a little different is that there currently is an expiration date. There is a sunset clause that would stop these bills from basically being enforced in four years. There's already talk about removing that sunset clause this session. So I don't think we're definitely done with it for now, but we'll we'll see what happens. For transgender Missourians like Chelsea Friels, they see this policy push as both a political wedge issue, but also about Missouri policymakers not wanting to acknowledge their existence. First of all, I, I do. I want to exist uh, just if, in case that wasn't clear. <laughs> Um, But yeah, no, the goal is to erase trans people and score as much political capital while you can. That is Chelsea Friels, who spoke out against a ultimately successful piece of legislation that barred gender affirming care for minors. I think that the big question here is for both of you, do you think that transgender rights and the fight for transgender rights will reach a similar point to same-sex marriage where it it may be unpopular now, but it it may gain acceptance into the future. I think you also have to consider whether or not you're talking about acceptance of gay marriage. That's still not 100% you know, accept it either. I mean, you talk about with with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's comments said they need to reevaluate those. So it's not even that's necessarily a done deal. I, I think it will take a lot of time because I don't think we're I mean, yes, I think that gay marriage is obviously more accepted than it was, before, you know, when it was legalized, but it's still not finished. It's still not, you know, there's still a lot of people who oppose it. So I think that it's definitely going to take time. I'm not sure if I'm going to see that in my lifetime, but who knows? So we are talking about the top stories of Missouri, Illinois, and St. Louis politics with St. Louis Public Radio's Rachel Lippman and Sarah Kellogg. And we're going to reveal the number one story, and I just have it down, Kim Gardner. Rachel, why was former Circuit Attorney Gardner under so much fire this year? I think it was because there was finally a case that people could rally around that demonstrated borderline just how poorly operated that office was. This was the case of a young volleyball player who was in downtown St. Louis for a tournament, man driving a vehicle, young man driving a vehicle, sped through some stop signs and ended with her legs being crushed between two cars. She ultimately had to have those legs amputated. He had been violated the conditions of his bond on I think it was an armed robbery case and the office had not done anything to revoke his bond. 
the victim, I think, had a lot of sympathy and it just kind of peeled back the curtain on a quite frankly dysfunctional office. Now, the Gardner saga had a lot of twists and turns, including when Gardner herself had a defiant and chaotic press conference after the aforementioned Andrew Bailey. The attorney general sought to get the courts to unseat her from office. Here is a scene from that unforgettable press conference. The attorney general, as others, used this unfortunate incident and tragic happening to this young lady as a political stunt of an unelected individual who wants to use politics to stop the voice of the people in the city of St. Louis. That is former circuit attorney Kim Gardner. The fact that I've been calling her former means that she did eventually Mm -hmm. resign. Uh, Why? I'll, I'll throw this open to both of you because there is a state government component. Why did she end up leaving? It was mainly due to kind of the threat of a a looming bill, a looming law. In my opinion, Um, there was basically legislation that would have allowed for the uh, governor to appoint an attorney to oversee crime and crime cases in the St. Louis area. It was actually a there was a quota of certain like crime thresholds that it had to reach. But St. Louis was the one who had that threshold. And so there was the threat of basically state control over St. Louis's legal system that was gaining momentum. It was through the House and it was uh, looking at the Senate. And so there was that. There was also uh, and I think there still will be calls for this, but state control over uh, the police department. So there were a lot of these overarching state laws that were looking to control St. Louis on a legal and and crime perspective. And I think there was a lot of pushback against that. And ultimately, it led to a conversation between now uh, the current state Senate pro tem president, Caleb Rowden, and the minority leader, uh, John Rizzo, talking with Kim Gardner. And ultimately, that was a big push to get her to resign. Now, Gabe Gore was appointed by Governor Mike Parson to uh, fill out the rest of Gardner's term. It'll remain to be seen if he can win a full four-year term next year. But what should we take away from this entire Gardner saga? I think the entire Gardner saga has always been a yes and. I think her office, because she was a progressive black woman prosecutor, had come under unfair scrutiny and unfair targets from white Republican men. You've seen that happen in other states, Philadelphia, Chicago, et cetera. Chicago's not a state, it's a city. Regardless, the and here was that evidently by the end and even at the beginning, I mean, Jason, you and I saw her in that courtroom when she prosecuted Eric Greitens in 2018. Was not pretty, not pretty. She just did not have the capacity to manage and to handle the job that she was elected to. She couldn't do, her office couldn't do the basic blocking and tackling to try and implement her reform agenda. And the, she, the scrutiny, therefore, was more warranted the longer into her terms she got. Rachel Lippman covers criminal justice and city politics for St. Louis Public Radio. And Sarah Kellogg is St. Louis Public Radio's state house and politics reporter. Sarah, Rachel, thank you for joining the show. It's always fun. You got it. Support for the Politically Speaking Hour on St. Louis on the Air comes from the Sue and Lynn Schneider Charitable Fund. This episode was produced by Alex Hoyer and Jason Rosenbaum. Edited by Alex Hoyer. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. 
Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.